0: Welcome back, our fellow Patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. Last episode, we explored the period of crisis after the American Revolution and before the adoption of the federal constitution. Although the Articles of Confederation were a remarkable achievement, as were the state constitutions adopted during and in the wake of the American Revolution, peacetime exposed fundamental flaws in the constitutional order. A critical inflection point had been reached in American history. Would the gains of the American Revolution be preserved, or would it, well, all go to hell in a handbasket? Hopefully, I'm not giving you a spoiler by letting you know that the founding generation reacted to this crisis in a brilliant way, by convening the Constitutional Convention. In this episode, we will explore how the convention came to be, who attended it, who was missing, and its rules. When I say we, I'm joined by Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett and Sheila Guerin thank you for your support.
1: Let's take a step back a few years to set the stage. As we explained in our last episode, leading members of the founding generation were disillusioned with the states running amok and the weaknesses of the Articles of Confederation. As a recap, the states had lurched into dangerous passionate fits of reform by issuing paper currency, impairing contracts to make it difficult or impossible to collect debts, engaging in trade wars among each other, and sitting idly by while courts were ransacked to prevent creditors from enforcing their legal contracts. Shay's rebellion in Massachusetts threatened to overturn the elected government to mob rule. The Founders had three major choices. One, do nothing and pray it all worked out. Two, reform the states. And three, reform the Articles of Confederation. Option one was unaccessible and increasingly rejected by most Americans. With regards to option two, award-winning historian Gordon S. Wood explained how the Founders tried to remedy the abuses of the states.
2: Initially... Leaders had responded to the problems of state legislative tyranny by proposing changes in the state governments and state constitutions. Reformers sought to take back some of the power the revolutionary constitutions of 1776 had granted the state legislatures, particularly the lower houses of representatives. They tried to strengthen the senators, governors, and judiciaries and to reduce the democratic character of state governments.
1: This effort yielded some success, in particular in Massachusetts, where its post-revolutionary constitution was not completed until 1780. The reformers had the distinct advantage of having John Adams lead the drafting of that constitution. He was by far one of the most learned and prudent draftsmen of the founding era, and he was very thoughtful about protecting unalienable rights and Good governance. But Massachusetts was the exception. For the most part, state reform efforts were stillborn. And John Adams was a rare breed. There were not a dozen other John Adamses sprinkled in each of the other states. Soon the focus shifted away from relatively ineffectual state reform to the third option reforming the central government. The flaws of the Articles of Confederation had come into sharp focus. Fundamental reform was seen as the only prospect forward. Wood continues.
2: By 1786-87, the reconstruction of the central government had become the focal point of most of the reform sentiment that had earlier been concentrated on the states. The continental-minded of the early 80s now found their efforts to invigorate the national government reinforced. By the support of hitherto suspicious state minded men. What had formerly been considered advisable for the functioning of the Confederation was fast becoming essential for the future of republicanism itself. It was no longer simply a matter of cementing the Union or of satisfying the demands of a particular creditor, mercantile, or army interests. The ability of America to sustain any sort of Republican government seemed to be the issue. As long as the revision of the Articles was based solely on the need to solve specific problems of finance, commerce, and foreign policy, its support was erratic and fearful. But once men grasped, as they increasingly did in the middle 80s, that reform of the national government, was the best means of remedying the evils caused by the state governments, then the revision of the Articles of Confederation assumed an impetuous and importance that it had not a few years earlier.
1: This shift to fundamentally transforming the Articles of Confederation had the benefit of potentially solving in one bold stroke both of the major issues vexing America. First, it would directly fix the essential flaws of the central government. Second, if done correctly, it could step in and cure the illnesses plaguing the states. But how to effectuate the transformation? There needed to be a pathway for reform. As with most things constitutional, the pathway forward was forged by James Madison. As we discussed in our last episode, without a strong Congress, the states were engaging in trade disputes among themselves. A key dispute arose between Virginia and Maryland about navigation rights in the Potomac River. As a member of the Virginia legislature, Madison spearheaded an effort to hold a conference between Maryland and Virginia to address the dispute. Naturally, Madison was appointed to Virginia's commission. After nearly a year, Maryland appointed its commission, and the conference was held in March 1785. A compact was forged. To the unaware, this seemed like a small victory, but to Madison, it sowed the seed of much greater things. Someone hatched the idea that Maryland and Virginia should meet once a year to review this and other related concerns— Further, controversies were swirling about navigation on the Chesapeake Bay as well as the Susquehanna and Delaware Rivers. To address these additional issues, someone suggested that another conference with Virginia and Maryland be held and, in fact, expanded to include Pennsylvania and Delaware. The sources are suspiciously vague about who made these suggestions for additional conferences. Personally, we think Madison was urging others to make these recommendations. It fits within his broader modus operandi we will uncover in this episode. Regardless of the source, Madison was not going to let this opportunity slip by. If you gave Madison an inch, he envisioned a mile. He joined with his fellow Virginia delegate, Judge John Tyler, in an effort to have Virginia propose that Congress be vested with the power to regulate commerce among the states. However, the Virginia Speaker of the House opposed this move, and slowly the proposal was whittled down to be just a temporary measure for 13 years. And that crippled its effectiveness. But was Madison stopped? Of course not. Madison forged a new path. He transformed the kernel of victory from the Maryland and Virginia Conference over the Potomac to be joined later by Delaware and Pennsylvania and expanded it to include all the states. He drafted a new resolution for consideration for the Virginia legislature. Since he was now clearly associated with wanting to expand the power of Congress— which may have raised suspicions for some lawmakers not so inclined, he passed the idea along to his fellow delegate, Judge Tyler. In fact, Judge Tyler introduced the measure, and the gambit worked, the resolution passed, and it provided as follows.
2: Resolved that Edmund Randolph, James Madison Jr., Walter Jones, St. George Tucker, Meriwether Smith Esquires, be appointed as commissioners, who, or any three of them whom shall meet such commissioners, as may be appointed by the other States in the Union, at a time and place to be agreed on, to take into consideration the trade of the United States to examine the relative situations and trade of the said states, to consider how far a uniform system in their commercial regulations may be necessary to their common interest and their permanent harmony, and to report to the several states such an act Relative to this great object, as when unanimously ratified by them, will enable the United States and Congress effectually to provide for the same
1: the meeting of the Convention of States was to be held in Annapolis, Maryland, in September seventeen eighty six More than a majority of states accepted the invitation to attend while Madison worked diligently in Virginia. Alexander Hamilton was working in a parallel fashion in New York. Hamilton had become so distraught about the state of affairs in America that he resolved to move into action to save the nation. He settled on two courses. One, become a congressman from New York and lead the charge for reforms within Congress, especially by vesting Congress with a legitimate taxing power and two, to engineer a constitutional convention to scrap the Articles of Confederation and start over. The Constitutional Convention seemed the more optimal course, but by far less likely. In 1786, the means to Hamilton's plan started to come to fruition. He was elected to the New York Assembly. Even though he had been elected for an assembly term that would not meet until 1787, he was able to convince the lame-duck session to appoint him to represent New York as a delegate to the Annapolis Convention. Nine states committed to attend the Annapolis Convention. James Madison had been working hard to make the convention a success, perhaps as the predecessor to a broader convention to address issues beyond trade regulations. He had been regularly consulting with George Washington, who was delighted. Washington wrote to the Marquis de Lafayette, All the legislatures which I have heard from have come into the proposition, and have made very judicious appointments. Much good is expected from this measure, and it is regretted by many that more objects were not embraced by the meeting." A general convention is talked of by many for the purpose of revising and correcting the defects of the federal government. But, whilst this is a wish of some, it is the dread of others, from an opinion, that matters are not yet sufficiently ripe for such an event. Washington also told John Jay that the Annapolis Convention and follow-up Constitutional Convention were critical for the survival of America. I do not conceive that we can exist long as a nation without having lodged somewhere a power which will pervade the whole Union in as energetic a matter as the authority of the state governments extend over the several states. In a letter to Henry Lee, Washington wrote that the prospect of implementing such critical reform was unlikely except under the most dire of circumstances. I have little hope of amendment without another convulsion. And convulsion was Washington's polite way of saying a riot, an uprising, an invasion, or a civil war. Unfortunately, Washington's fear was becoming reality. Only 14 delegates representing five states actually showed up to Annapolis, Virginia, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. Four other states had committed, but sent no delegates. There was no way that the neutered convention could remedy the economic ills, raging trade wars, and the impotence of Congress. High expectations had been dashed. Madison and Hamilton were undeterred. They were determined that the convention should not leave empty-handed. If the Annapolis Convention would not achieve its goal, then, so to speak, to hell with it. Madison fixed his eyes on a much bigger prize, a new convention, to overhaul the Articles of Confederation. He worked with Hamilton and John Dickinson of Delaware to have the Annapolis Convention adopt an address, otherwise known as the Annapolis Report. Hamilton took the lead in drafting the report. Madison showed Hamilton's first draft to fellow Virginia delegate Edmund Randolph, who was about to be made governor. Randolph blanched at its scope and suggested that any attempt to hold a convention with the express purpose of scrapping the Articles of Confederation would likely be dead on arrival. Randolph himself might oppose it. Always the master tactician, Madison convinced Hamilton to tone it down. Then Madison convinced New Jersey delegate Abraham Clark to move approval of the report. The report was adopted on September 14th, and that's the fourth day of Patriot Week. See, we have another reason to celebrate that week. The report was addressed to the legislatures of the states, which had sent delegates, but it also asked that the report be circulated to all the state legislatures. It explained that working on trade and commerce matters was fruitless with so few states present at the Annapolis Convention – It then begged leave for going beyond the purpose for which the convention was convened, and it explained.
0: Your commissioners cannot forbear to indulge an expression of their earnest and unanimous wish that speedy measures may be taken to effect a general meeting of the states. In a future convention, for the same and such other purposes as the situation of public affairs may be found to require, the power of regulating trade is of such comprehensive extent and will enter so far into the general system of the federal government that to give it efficacy and to obviate questions and doubts concerning its precise nature and limits may require a correspondent adjustment of other parts of the federal system. That there are important defects in the system of the federal government is acknowledged by the acts of those states which have concurred in the present meeting that the defects upon a closer examination may be found greater and more numerous than even these acts imply is at least so probable from the embarrassments which characterize the present state of our national affairs. Foreign and domestic, as may reasonably be supposed to merit a deliberate and candid discussion, in some mode which will unite the sentiments and councils of the states. In the choice of the mode, your commissioners are of the opinion that a convention of deputies from the different states for the special and sole purpose of entering into this investigation and digesting a plan for supplying such defects as may be discovered to exist will be entitled to a preference from consideration which will occur without being particularized. The report then specifically
1: declined to list any of the weaknesses of the Articles of Confederation, and explained instead that it was necessary that states unite their energy and wisdom to address the current crisis. The report recommended that all the states appoint commissioners to attend a new convention on the second Monday of May, 1787, in Philadelphia. Not surprisingly, the Annapolis Report was not enthusiastically embraced by Congress. Alexander Hamilton biographer, Forrest MacDonald, expressed the lay of the land.
2: Congress was peopled mainly by members who mistrusted one another, despised the state governments but feared a strong central government, jealous jealously guided their prerogatives even though they had no powers. The disposition to call a convention to revise the Articles of Confederation was non-existent. Congress referred the proposal to a committee of three, which in turn referred it to a committee of thirteen, which Congress never appointed.
1: Despite Congress's reluctance, several states were eager to move forward. Of course, Madison ensured that Virginia moved almost immediately. Following tradition, the legislature appointed delegates to represent Virginia at the convention. New Jersey quickly followed, as did Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Delaware, and Georgia. The convention appeared to be on track.
0: Okay, okay, let me jump in here. However, there was a serious obstacle. The inaction of Congress raised doubts about whether the convention could meet at all. A few states meeting about trade issues was one thing. It was quite another magnitude altogether to convene a convention to revamp the entirety of the Articles of Confederation. If Congress did not authorize the convention, it would be considered illegal but then events intervened. As we noted last episode, Shay's rebellion in western Massachusetts sent a shudder of fear up and down the spine of America's political leadership. The superintendent of war of Congress, General Henry Knox, wrote that between 12,000 and 15,000 well-armed, unprincipled men had organized in western Massachusetts, and they intended to redistribute property equally among the people. The rumor was that they believed that the American Revolution was fought to secure the property of everyone in the country, so it was appropriate that such property should be evenly distributed as the spoils of war. This leveling spirit, akin to what would be considered communism in a future age, was shocking and an anathema to the unalienable rights of Americans. Knox explained that if this nightmare succeeded, others in New England would join their forces. This was enough to spur an otherwise recalcitrant Congress into action. On February 21st of 1787, the Congress approved the convention that Madison had proposed. However, because the Annapolis Report was so limited, so was the call for a convention. The Congressional Resolution provided, in pertinent part, that it be recommended to the states composing the Union that a convention of representatives from the said states respectively be held at on for the purpose of revising the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union between the United States of America and reporting to the United States in Congress assembled and to the states respectively such alterations and amendments of the said Articles of Confederation as the representatives met in such conference shall judge proper and necessary to render them adequate to the preservation and support of the Union. Washington's prophecy that it would take a convulsion to move the country was taking form. Despite this victory, because of personal circumstances, Washington was reluctant to be directly involved in the upcoming convention. Nevertheless, the Virginia legislature had put the issue directly on the table. Virginia had appointed him as a delegate. So there was a problem. Before he was appointed, Washington had already informed the Society of the Cincinnati, an American Revolution veterans association of rising importance, that he would not attend their upcoming meeting. He politely told the Cincinnati that his health, including rheumatism and other personal burdens prevented him from attending. You might ask, what does it have to do with the upcoming convention? Well, this rub had multiple barbs. He was the president of the illustrious Society of the Cincinnati, it only met once every 3 years, and the Cincinnati were meeting in Philadelphia in May of 1787. That is the exact same time and place as Madison had proposed for the Convention of States. Washington was happily retired. Much more important, Washington personally believed in maintaining his credibility and honor, and he wrote Madison that he was deeply concerned that appearing for the proposed convention after having turned down the Cincinnati would give great offense to the veterans and the society he led. But the convention might not even be called. It was, after all, a speculative conflict. Until it wasn't. Once Congress had approved a convention, the other states, except for Rhode Island, quickly fell in line. When it became painfully obvious that Madison's machinations were working, Washington had to make a decision. Turn down the convention of states and walk away from pressing public service of the highest order, or accept the commitment and offend the Cincinnati. After Washington revealed the dilemma, Madison, and now Virginia Governor Edmund Randolph, and others began to urge Washington to go to the convention. He had to help save the republic. To compound matters, Washington was facing personal tragedies. His beloved brother died, as did a baby in the family. His financial affairs were under heavy onslaught. He liked retirement. He vacillated. Then matters started to swing in favor of attending the convention. Putting aside rascally Rhode Island, the Congress and states reunited that a convention was essential. The sentiment throughout the continent for reform had solidified. The states were appointing highly qualified men to attend the convention. Washington began to understand that his hesitation was being misinterpreted as indifference or perhaps even opposition to reform. You see, Patrick Henry, Thomas Nelson, and Richard Henry Lee, the leading lights of Virginia, had all declined appointment. If he declined too, wouldn't that be a sign that he agreed with them? He became exceedingly concerned that the Virginia delegation needed to be bolstered, and who better to bolster it than him? Madison, ever the persuasive tactician, helped seal the deal with his persistent overtures. Washington agreed to attend with much fanfare. American Revolutionary War General and then Superintendent of War Henry Knox wrote Lafayette in a matter that was clearly emblematic of the prevailing sentiment.
2: General Washington's attendance at the convention adds. In my opinion, new luster to his character. Secure as he was in his fame, he has again committed it to the mercy of events. Nothing but the critical situation of his country would have induced him to so hazardous conduct. But its happiness being in danger, he
0: disregards all personal considerations. The twelve state delegations that appeared at the convention were a remarkable grouping of accomplished men. The states appointed 74 delegates, but for a variety of reasons, only 55 came. Those 55 delegates included
1: New Hampshire Nicholas Gilman John Langdon Massachusetts Elbridge Gerry Nathaniel Gorham Rufus King Caleb Strong Connecticut Oliver Ellsworth William Samuel Johnson Roger Sherman New York Alexander Hamilton John Lansing Jr. Robert Yates
2: New Jersey David Brearley Jonathan Dayton William C. Houston William Livingston William Patterson Pennsylvania George Clymer Thomas Fitzsimmons Benjamin Franklin Jared Ingersoll Thomas Mifflin Gouverneur Morris Robert Morris James Wilson Delaware Richard Bassett Gunning Bedford Jr., Jacob Broom, John Dickinson, George Reed, Maryland, Daniel Carroll, Daniel of St. Thomas Jennifer, Luther Martin, James McHenry, John F. Mercer.
0: Virginia, George Washington, John Blair, James Madison, George Mason, James McClurg, Edmund Randolph, George Wythe, North Carolina, William Blunt, William R. Davy, Alexander Martin, Richard Dobbs-Sprate, Hugh Williamson. South Carolina, Pierce Butler, Charles Pinckney, Charles Coatsworth-Pinckney, John Rutledge. Georgia, Abraham Baldwin, William Few, William Houston, William L. Pierce. Many delegates appeared late, left for short and long periods of time, and reappeared, and others left and never returned. Only a few attended every session. James Madison was the most notable delegate who never missed a day. The delegates included governors, generals, military officers, judges, congressmen, state legislators, physicians, planters, and businessmen. Benjamin Franklin and George Washington were two global celebrities of the highest order. 60% were lawyers. Jurists and attorneys of exemplary reputation attended, including John Dickinson, Edmund Randolph, George Wythe. Madison, and Hamilton. Eight signed the Declaration of Independence. Nearly three-quarters served in Congress. Many helped draft state constitutions. Seven were governors, and 21 were veterans of the American Revolution. When reviewing the list of delegates from his diplomatic outpost in Paris, Thomas Jefferson remarked it was an assembly of demagogues. And with regard to this issue, who are we to disagree with Thomas Jefferson? Historian Saul Padover gives a great summary of the educational background of the delegates.
2: Nearly half were college graduates, an astonishing proportion, in view of the fact that formal education was then strictly confined to a minute fraction of the population. The overwhelming majority of the American people had no education at all. Only the offspring of the well-to-do, those whom Alexander Hamilton called the rich and the well-born, received any education at the time, and even for them, going to college was uncommon. Many of the delegates to the convention were either self-taught or privately tutored. Of those who went to college, some notably the learned James Wilson and the distinguished John Dickinson were graduated from Scottish or British institutions. The rest were educated at American colleges, primarily at Princeton, 10, William & Mary, 4, Yale, 3, Columbia, and
0: Harvard, 2 each. Nearly all the delegates were deeply steeped in British, Protestant, and classical thinking. In fact, classical philosophers, lawgivers, historians and others were basically the curriculum of the delegates. As such, the Greek triumvirate of Socrates, Plato and Aristotle, Roman statesman, lawyer and philosopher Cicero, Greek stoic philosopher Epictetus, Greek historian and geographer Herodotus, Roman poet Horace, Roman general and author Pliny, Greek philosopher Pythagoras, Roman historian Sallust, Roman statesman, philosopher and dramatist Seneca Roman historian and politician Tacitus, and Athenian military commander, historian, and philosopher Xenophon. These and more were old friends. Well read were the pages of English and European philosophical and legal scholars, such as Sir Edward Coke, Henry Holmes, otherwise known as Lord Cain, Sir William Blackstone, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, Baron de Montesquieu, and Elegren Sidney. English poet John Milton was imbibed. Ancient Greek and Roman, as well as English history, were well-traveled guideposts. The Bible was the brightest pole star. The contributions of the delegates varied. Demigods or not, some rose to the occasion, and some flattened out. Saul Padover offers a wonderful summary.
2: The debates in the convention produced several surprises. Some delegates with great reputations contributed little. A few obscure ones rose to heights of statesmanship and wisdom. Many changed their minds. The majority spoke little, or briefly, or sporadically, or unconvincingly, or off the point. The normally energetic and persuasive Robert Morris, who had served the revolution brilliantly, as supervisor of finance, was unaccountably silent throughout the sessions. Alexander Hamilton made a few forensic splurges but exerted no influence. James McClurg, a physician, had practically nothing to say. William Livingston, a satiric poet, seemed out of his depth. The learned and renowned John Dickinson Was soon to be a bore, although his exertions after the convention had important bearing on ratification of the Constitution by Delaware and Pennsylvania. Luther Martin was tiresome with his passion for the sacred rights of the small states. The aged Benjamin Franklin, always listened to with respect, was still
0: sensible. And amusing, but garrulous. Garrulous, by the way, is talkative. One man who did not disappoint was George Washington. Heck, just by showing up, he doubled the credibility of the convention. He gave it a fighting chance. He arrived in Philadelphia on May 13th to great celebration. As the president of the convention, he presided fairly and with an even keel. He was graceful, firm, and beyond dignified. An imposing presence, with a reputation for unfailing courage and integrity, no one would dare get out of order. The delegates were passionate, but debated in a respectful and moderate tone. The rules were going to be followed, or you would face the wrath of George Washington. Knowing his role was best served by moderating the discussion, Washington barely directly contributed to the debates. But he performed the greatest of service by making sure they were conducted at all. A dozen men performed most of the substantive work. They created proposals, advocated positions, drafted language, forged compromises, and persuaded or cajoled others to come along. Those amazing men were Oliver Ellsworth, Elbridge Gerry, Rufus King, James Madison, George Mason, Gouverneur Morris, William Patterson, Charles Pickney, Edmund Randolph, John Rutledge, Roger Sherman, and James Wilson. Now, everyone agrees that Madison was the leading figure. Hence his modern-day moniker, Father of the Constitution. As he was wont to do, since he prepared more than anyone else, he arrived 11 days early. He attended every day. He took copious notes that fairly described the proceedings. Although 10 others also took notes, his collection was by far the most insightful, comprehensive, fair, and complete. And although this may have been a collection of demigods, they were missing some of their important peers. The largest blow was likely John Adams, who was in London as ambassador to the British Empire. Remember, he drafted an excellent constitution for Massachusetts, which is still in effect to this day. However, he did have a substantial phantom influence. Adams' book, A Defense of the Constitutions of Government of the United States of America, was circulated and referred to frequently by the delegates. Thomas Jefferson was in Paris as ambassador to France. Sam Adams was ill, but he was a revolutionary more than a constitutionalist. Patrick Henry refused to attend, claiming he smelled a rat. His fellow Virginian, Richard Henry Lee, also refused. Thomas Paine was also in Europe, but the appointments were made before he left and he was not selected. His radical views were unacceptable for the convention. And by the way, he wasn't serving in an official post in Europe either. The brilliant John Jay was denied a seat by New York, New York was not in favor of major reform, and so they ensured that Alexander Hamilton was outnumbered by selecting two anti reform New York delegates to outvote him. Jay was on the wrong side of the ledger, which was the convention's loss. Of course, how the Constitution might have differed had one or more of these absent demigods had participated is really idle speculation. But I like to think that more unalienable rights would have been expressly protected. Jefferson almost certainly would have vociferously argued for that. And I suspect that Adams and others might have fixed the flawed vice-presidency, but that just might be wishful thinking. Jefferson was also fearful of a strong judiciary, so more attention to the judicial power might have arisen. Patrick Henry was a fierce defender of state sovereignty, and he became an able opponent of the Constitution. Had he attended, the Constitution may have been very different. For the good or ill, who can say? For those delegates who did attend they had the luck of meeting in the hottest summer in memory, in a closed-up building, with the miracle of air conditioning, centuries away. Now, the convention was supposed to kick off on May 14th, but too many of the delegates were tardy, and there was no quorum. Finally, on May 25th, the convention began with 29 delegates representing nine states. The first order of business was to appoint a president of the convention. Of course, there was only one choice. As the host state, Pennsylvania had the honor of nominating Washington. Franklin would have made the motion, but he was ill at home, so Robert Morris did so. John Rutledge of South Carolina seconded the nomination. Foreshadowing the future, Washington was unanimously elected. Washington gave a short acceptance speech, noting that he was embarrassed by his lack of qualifications, would exert his best efforts, begged for forgiveness for any unintentional errors, and called upon Providence to assist him. Historian Catherine Brinker Brown explained the scene. There is something touching in the way Washington always lamented his want of qualifications and called on God to help, whether it was a nomination as Commander-in-Chief of the Army, as President of the Federal Convention, or as President of the United States. One feels he meant it. This was not false modesty. To his colleagues, it must have been reassuring. Washington was everywhere known as the greatest character in America a man of prestige, with a landed estate and magnificent physical appearance. If I may,
1: there is one item that was passed over that we should clarify. At the time the convention began, no delegates from New Hampshire had been appointed. They did eventually arrive about midway through the convention and made important contributions. Rhode Island never sent any delegates. In any event, after Washington was confirmed as president— the next questions to address were the ground rules of the convention. On May 28th, they adopted the following rules of protocol.
0: Every member rising to speak shall address the president, and whilst he shall be speaking, none shall pass between them, or hold discourse with another, or read a book, pamphlet, or paper, printed, or manuscript, and of two members rising to speak at the same time, the president shall name him how shall be first heard.
1: Today's multitaskers would have violated this rule immediately. This rule ensured that the remarks of every delegate were given the dutiful respect they deserved. In addition, although there was really no choice, each state was vested with a single vote regardless of the number of members in its own delegation and irrespective of the size, wealth, or population of the state. A more delicate question was soon dispensed with the delegates made it official that a simple majority of states could decide any question. This, in a very material fashion, broke with the decision-making process of the First Continental Congress, the Second Continental Congress, and the Articles of Confederation. On May 29th, they adopted a rule of
0: secrecy. That nothing spoken in the House be printed or otherwise published or communicated without leave Today,
1: this would be unthinkable. And it raised some grave concerns even then. It cut against the American spirit and English traditions of open debate. Parliament and town meetings in England were open to the public. The deliberations of town meetings, colonial legislatures, the Stamp Act Congress, various colonial protest meetings, the First Continental Congress, the Second Continental Congress, and the Congress under the Articles of Confederation had all been. Been in public. Secret trials were condemned. The press was free. Just what were the delegates doing in secret? Why would secrecy be necessary unless they were corrupt or undermining the liberties of the people? However, the convention delegates thought secrecy was essential. Saul Padover explained the sentiment.
2: The rule of secrecy was vitally important for the country was in a pitch of excitement over the Federal Convention. The wildest rumors circulated. People were saying that the Convention was planning to replace the Thirteen States with three separate republics, that Rhode Island was to be expelled from the Union, that a monarchy was being set up, that the Duke of York, Son of George the was being invited to become king. People apparently believed many of the rumors, judging by the mail of the delegates. Letters angrily accused the convention of pro-monarchist bias, or anxiously sought information that would ally fears to safeguard the debates and guarantee the fullest freedom of speech. From outside pressure and agitation, it was essential that secrecy prevail.
1: Indeed, Madison wrote that he thought that no constitution would have been possible if secrecy had not been maintained. This rule of secrecy was taken seriously. The convention posted sentries to protect the delegates and convention from being broached. The integrity of secrecy was maintained for years— In fact, Madison's notes were not released for decades. When the time came to publicly advocate for adoption of the Constitution, instead of relying on his notes, Madison, Hamilton, and Jay collaborated on a new set of essays known today as the Federalist Papers. Now the convention was finally ready to get to business. It had been called, it had a president, it had rules, and it had secrecy. Now it was time for the hard part. It would make or break America. Madison was not exaggerating when he reflected that the convention was to
2: decide forever the fate of Republican government.
0: Some key takeaways from this episode. Following the success of a commercial compact between Virginia and Maryland, James Madison worked a call for the Annapolis Convention to begin reforming trade matters among the states. Although the Annapolis Convention was poorly attended, with the leadership of Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and others, the delegates issued a report that called for a constitutional convention to reform the Articles of Confederation more broadly. Substantially aided by an unintentional assist from Shays' Rebellion, with the exception of Rhode Island, all states agreed to send delegates to a convention in May of 1787. After some cajoling by Madison and others, George Washington agreed to attend the convention, giving it a tremendous boost in credibility, and he was appointed its president. The convention established rules that provided that each state would have one vote, that a majority vote would carry any propositions, that each speaker would be given respectful attention, and the proceedings would be conducted in secrecy. The future of freedom across the world would depend on what the delegates did next. Join us next time when we begin our exploration of the Constitution, beginning with the world-famous preamble that begins with the immortal words, we the people. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two terrific Patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skonechny, who is our sound designer and Patriot Week's new video content creator, and bombastic Brent Bassett, a premier Patriot Week volunteer. And yes, this podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org to learn more about America's first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers and other great patriots, and flags from our history along with a bunch of terrific resources that we have to offer. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless you, and God bless America.
1: Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at patriotweek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History, by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.